Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is Tom Morello. If he wasn't one of rock's best guitarists, he'd be known as one of its most tireless activists and vice versa. From Rage Against the Machine to Audio Slave, Prophets of Rage and his solo records, he's talked the talk and walked the walk, playing picket lines as well as stadiums. Now he's publishing a photographic memoir called Whatever It Takes. Hi, Tom. Thanks for joining me. Hi, how are you? Thanks very much for having me. Where are you right now? I'm actually in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. I'm a, I'm a climate refugee. My family and I are climate refugees currently. The California wildfires and the attending smoke and horrible air quality have driven us from the state. Well, I'm glad you're out of that apocalyptic looking climate. Yeah, it is. It's very much feeling that way. Now, I've noticed that, that sometimes on Twitter, you, you respond to tweets that, um, that tell you to stick to music. <laughs> is it really possible to like your music and not notice the lyrics after all this time? The, the answer is obviously yes, given the uh, the the thousands of quote unquote fans who seem to have, have missed the refrains of, of the music I've been making over the course of 19 albums. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, the, the, I mean, I, in some ways, I believe it's a testament to the chemistry of the bands I've been in, whether it's Rage or Audio Slave or Prophets uh, or the musicians I've worked with, collaborated with in my solo work, that the music can be compelling with people having no idea what it's really about. <laughs> and, you know, it is it is a, a bit of fun to poke at them when they, they're outraged that all of a sudden Tom Morello has gotten political in 2020 when they weren't clearly weren't paying attention to any of those 19 records over the course of the last few decades. And also fun when they when they go, well, what what does a musician know? And then you get to point out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's first that's of all, education. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, one does not need a you know a, a degree from a prestigious university you know in order to know right from wrong. But when you know if if they're going to pull political education credential cards out, then I'm ready for that one. A lot of people become uh, in music and just elsewhere become politically engaged in their teens or twenties, regardless of their their family. But with mm. your upbringing, was that part of your life? almost from from the cradle that it was sort of inevitable yeah i mean i really i really took it for granted i mean there were two vectors that influenced my politics from a very very young age one i was the only black kid in an all white town so injustice met me head on on the playground when i was 4 and 5 years old and then you know my my mom was a radical leftist in a archly conservative homogenous suburb of chicago and then you know the, the photos that were on my the walls of my home were of 
anti-colonial leaders, third world leaders. And, and uh, I just assumed that every family had those photos hanging on their wall uh, until, you know, really until my mid-teens and I was in high school and realized there was a real stark contrast between the ethos and the kind of the, the sort of the moral compass of the Morello family and others in the community where I grew up. And did you find at high school, did you find any kindred spirits on, on that level or, or did you, or was your bonding more around uh, music? Yeah, no, I, I certainly did. There were there was a cadre of of similar minded aspiring anarcho syndicalists in my in my high school, which really we helped. You know, we helped fuel each other's fire. And I cover all. all there's a lot of. You know, I was digging through my closet and through garages and attics for for the book for the whatever it takes book and found you know I was a, on an underground newspaper in high school and you know my my twin passions really from the time I was you know, 16 or 17 years old, uh, were rock and roll and radical politics. And I really did think that those two worlds would be separate until I discovered a band, The Clash, you know, which combined the best of music with sort of the most potent worldview that harmonized with my way of looking at things. Because I love the story about uh, being in this band at, at Harvard and trying to sneak songs about apartheid into a band <laughs> yeah. who, who were into Motley Crue and Spandex. So that, yeah. that seemed like perhaps a, a failed attempt to join up the two halves. Yeah, it, it, you know, I think you're right. It's well spotted there. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was it's it was not it's not a, it's not the easiest. You know, obviously it's not the. Um, the easiest sell. And in part, because I was unwilling to let go. You know, many of my friends that grew, you know, friends and acquaintances that grew up with heavy metal music and then discovered punk eschewed their spandex metal past. I did not. And I was, you know, <laughs> determined that I was going to, you know, I could, I could love the clash and I could love the sex pistols and I could love Motley Crue and Judas Priest at the same time. Um, however, Weaving those two uh, strains together really did not come to fruition till uh, till years later. Because I remember I, I first met you doing an audio slave feature in LA in two thousand and two, I think, mm. and I was waiting outside the the Roxy, maybe one of those venues on Sunset, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where you're doing a little gig, and two guys passing by saw one of the flight cases with a red star on it and asked me, "Are they communists?" Which was Pretty funny, but I couldn't actually confidently sort of answer. It, 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 I was like, I was like, I don't want to kind of sum up a whole political <laughs> worldview here based on a flight case. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, very clearly on the left. But I mean, have you do do you sort of label particularly you know, define your politics? Uh, I, I have a feeling. I have a feeling those flight cases could be used in evidence. You know, in the in the coming trials. You know, <laughs> in, in the uh, in the proto fascist Trump America. Those flight that you're, you you may you may be called to the stand to testify <laughs> about those flight cases at some point. Some point. Yeah, I've I've always kind of issued specific specific markers. I mean, the, the, the moral compass of my politics and my music has always remained the same. And that is standing up for the underdog, standing up for the poor, standing up for the oppressed, always, um, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with those who are fighting for a more just and decent world. And I don't think that that, you know, I, I remember my, my first days at Harvard in the, uh, you know, in the dining room, there were these heated arguments between these, you know, 19 year old Trotskyists, you know, and Maoists, and just like they were losing their minds. And, and I was thinking, well, if, if you guys can't get along in a Harvard dining room, then the, the left certainly is, <laughs> uh, is in for a, uh, a, a long, hard uphill battle. So I've always tried to be very generous with you know fans and 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 comrades and try to have a, a big tent of all those who are pulling in the uh direction of uh you know of, mm. of human rights and justice and anti-racism 
I don't remember there's a story from a Students for Democratic Society conference towards the end, just before they broke up, and you had two different factions, yeah. both accusing each other of being false Maoists. Yes, yeah. And I was like, I was like, nothing good will come of, will come good. of this. It, it's funny because a couple of the people who are on the podium are actually really good friends of mine today, and the the fairy god parents of my children. Oh, so really? They, they've, they've mellowed. They've mellowed somewhat in there. <laughs> Not accusing your children of being false Maris. No, heavens no. They're very, they're very sort of grandparently. <laughs> oh, how wonderful! Because there's certain times when you know when I, when I interview that that I've I could sort of imagine you more than I think uh, most musicians you know could have had a, a life in politics and and you worked for a little while for Senator Alan Cranston yeah. in the late eighties. Yeah. What convinced you about that experience that politics was not the profession for you. Yeah. Well, I would I was, you know, my my aspirations were more revolutionary than electoral from a very young age, but when I moved to Hollywood with my, you know, prestigious Ivy League degree, I couldn't get a job even selling Iron Maiden t-shirts at a stoner <laughs> head shop on Hollywood Boulevard because my work the totality of my work experience was working at the, you know, local Renaissance fair. I could juggle and I could do like a card trick, but I didn't have any sort of practical waiter experience. Uh, so the one job that I could get uh, was being the scheduling secretary for a United States Senator. So uh, honestly, it was just a, a way to pay the rent during some very, very lean times. But it did cure me of forever wanting to be a part of that. I mean, there were two specific instances. One was the uh, the senator who was like a very progressive and a lot of his legislative angles uh, spent most of his time asking rich guys for money. It was my job to get him on the telephone, you know, and that money doesn't come for free. And that made me feel very sort of oily and realize that if, you know, if you're in politics in the United States, most of what your job is, is asking rich guys for money. But secondly, and the thing that cured me forever of wanting to you're going to be a part of a system as it is, was one day a woman called up the office and her complaint was that Mexicans were moving into her neighborhood and she wanted the senator to do something about this. I'm not sure whether she was suggesting some sort of ethnic cleansing of the Wilshire district of Los Angeles, but whatever it was, she was pissed off that Mexicans were moving in her neighborhood. And I said, I told, I said, ma'am, you're a damn racist and you can go to hell. And I hung up the phone. I thought I did the senator's work that day. I got yelled at for two solid weeks by everybody up and down the uh, hierarchical political chain and realized that if I was in a job where I couldn't call a damn racist a damn racist and to tell them to go to hell, then I was in the wrong line of work. Fortunately, in rock and roll, I've been able to tell damn racist to go to hell on every record. <laughs> Do you think that if you were fresh out of university now, in the kind of era, the sort of post-Bernie Sanders era where you, 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 know, you have yeah. people like AOC and yeah. a sort of different kind of politics emerging, which certainly is not about chasing yeah. rich donors might you have felt differently yeah there, there, there certainly is a different wind blowing on that you know that but the thing that i noticed from from my my history in the you know working in the democratic party is how terrified the democratic party is of those politicians they would much rather have four years of four more years of trump than they would eight years of bernie because eight years of bernie means the end of their existence as it currently stands and so um, you know, and also too, I was all, I was too much punk rock and too much rock and roll to want to be having to sort of play that game. Like I, I enjoyed the, the, you know, my, my heroes were not anyone who was ever in Congress, <laughs> you know, my heroes, <laughs> my heroes were the Black Panthers and were Che Guevara and were, you know, were freedom fighters around the globe. And then, you know, and then the Jimmy Pages and the Mick Joneses as well. And, and none of that was going to get me on a ballot. Now, you'll remember times when I suppose politics was very much 
on the sidelines of music uh, and that and it, it, it must have felt kind of you know a little lonely uh, now it seems to be not not everywhere not just in music including a lot of the kind of biggest stars but even in the way that we talk about music mm. uh, so much kind of music criticism now you know it's it's talking about um, issues of kind of, of race and gender and class yes. and the role of, of music in the world what do you think has sort of has made such a huge shift compared to you know, certain points, I think, towards the end of, end of the 90s. Even the yeah, 90s. I mean, well, for, first of all, I would say that neither then nor now have I ever cared about that. I've tried to hitch my convictions to my vocation, which mm. happens to be a musician. I could care less what other bands or other artists are ever doing. I've always looked at myself and the bands that I've, you know, had the good fortune to be a part of as part of global movements for social justice. And that those global movements are participated in by people with many, a variety of vocations from, you know, from union carpenters to radical students to grandmas at home writing letters to the editor. It's never been the least bit important to me to sort of people like, like, well, what do you think about, you know, are there, are there enough bands writing political songs that, well, I I don't care. Like the, (laughs) the, the barometer is really like, are you being authentic to who you are? And are you standing shoulder to shoulder with those of what? whatever vocation who are fighting for the same thing. That's the, that, that's always been key to me. I don't think that there's ever been a period where it hasn't existed. I think that where there have been periods where political music doesn't get the attention or does not visit the top of the charts, et cetera, or the you know, front or has the number of Instagram follows or whatever. But it, it does seem to me that, that that vein of artists standing up for their rights has, is more to the forefront because we're at this, crucial his juncture in the history of the planet where literally the planet is in danger mm. now and you know from the global environmental threat of of climate change to of cl- impending climate disaster to the rise of these proto-fascist governments in you know the u.s and uk and and brazil that it's really kind of all at stake right now and the in the next five to 15 years and the policies enacted by you know the the world's governments will determine whether or not we have a civilization that is able to survive in the climate that we are now giving ourselves. So somebody better be singing and rapping about it. There are political prisoners, in fact, who I learned about because you played benefit gigs in the 90s, who are still in jail now. Yeah. And, and, and often that is the way activism often takes a very long time to pay off, if at all. And yeah. there have always been uh, not just you know, musicians and other artists, but just people in general who very, throw themselves into activism. And then there are too many defeats or setbacks and they mm. and they just don't have it in them yeah. to kind of keep on. Yeah. Does it take a certain stamina not to get disillusioned, to think, okay, we, you know, we fight another day, day after day? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, there, there are a lot of victories along the way, there are a lot of things that are very heartening. And, you know, I couldn't, couldn't begin to tell you from the real on the ground factual victories of, you know, a particular labor union, the Immokalee farm workers who, you know, won their strike, some uh, janitor strike in LA, all of which, you know, there's dozens and dozens more of specific moments and movements that myself and my some of my musical comrades have been involved in where, you know, we've help put wind in the sails of those who are doing the grassroots work to change the world for the better and have won and have had 
great historic victories that have changed the lives of the people who are fighting for those victories. Of course, that's not always the case, but that's not, that's not how history works. You really have to look at like the arc of history and that and the impossible things often happen because people, average, ordinary, everyday people, like people listening to this, stand up in their place and time for a more just and decent planet. Like at one time in the United States, it was thought unthinkable that women would vote. Unthinkable. The, the fact that the public rest stops in Alabama would be segregated, unthinkable. The Berlin Wall, when I was growing up, was something that was going to be there forever. Apartheid was something that could was absolutely immovable. All of those things changed because people, no different from anyone listening to this broadcast, stood up in their place and time. And you, people who have no more, had no more money or influence or power or creativity or intelligence than than any of us. Like just did it and did the work. And sometimes there were setbacks and sometimes there were great victories that improved the lives of millions of people. That's the back, that's the historical backdrop of why we continue to fight because it does work and it's the only way and the planet is not going to change itself. That's up to you. Yeah, because in hindsight, you do often, I uh, think if you would, were, don't remember at the time, you do often think that these the, the, these things were sort of inevitable and you don't really, yes. it's, it's sort of hard to remember if you or, or imagine if you weren't there in the eighties, this feeling like this is never going to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I was involved when I was in college, I was involved in like the, the apartheid movement. That was really a galvanizing thing for me and, and trying to get the university to divest from companies that did business with racist apartheid South Africa. And, you know, we were one drop in an ocean of activists around the globe fighting against apartheid, but that ocean eventually, you know, was a tsunami that overcame apartheid. And, you know, whatever small role, you know, me and my classmates played in that, uh, you know, that was real. And that's, that's, it just, that is how the world changes. And what they want you to do, the powers that be would be very, very happy if you just stuck to your Instagram feed or whatever, um, you know, and, and I, people should enjoy music, they should enjoy sports, and they should enjoy their Instagram feed. But, but, but also engaging with the battles of your day matters, and it means something. And if you know, it's like sort of, if the top of a, a bottle is stuck really, really hard, it takes sort of perseverance to pop that top. And it may not happen during your lifetime. But when that top opens, it's going to make for a better world. One of the forewords of the book is written by Michael Moore, who directed a, a Rage video in 2000. I remember that there was a kind of scene where George W. Bush and Al Gore were kind of blurred together. So it's sort of two sides of the same coin, which, yes. which uh, during that election, I, I remember sort of, you know, getting that point. Um, yeah. Then after the, I revisited it, saw that video about 10 years later after the Iraq war and Hurricane Katrina, and then saw that differently and went, actually, that this was a big difference. And now there yeah. are some people on the left, not as many, uh, who perhaps obviously really wanted Bernie Sanders saying that Biden would be would be no better than than Trump? How yeah. do you how do you personally play the kind of deal with that sort of lesser of two evils issue? Or you know, yeah, yeah. Well, it's well. First of all, it's it's not the lesser of two evils. It's the evil of two lessers, and that is the system that is imposed upon us to keep the status quo firmly, firmly in place. Now, I always vote, and the reason why I vote is because they don't want me to. <laughs> you know, voters in my country, voter suppression is a huge thing. And they like democracy is not something that power structure wants. They want, you know, enough people to vote to make sure that you get one of the acceptable candidates in who keeps the status quo as it is. In every electoral decision, there are, of course, 
important differences. And I think that you're right. I mean, the, the Iraq war was is less likely uh, to have happened if that election had gone the other way. And there are friends of mine who have perished uh, who would probably be alive in that case, not to mention the 1.13 million Iraqis, uh, you know, who perished in, in that as well. And now, you know, in this election now, neither of the candidates are, I mean, I think there was some outrageous poll lately where over 50% of people in the United States did not believe that either candidate was mentally competent. I mean, and you you wonder why you wonder why some people stay home from, from the polls is because these are the candidates that are foisted upon us. But like I said, we are at a crucial juncture in history. You know, I think that there's a real danger of this kind of proto-fascism and environmental destruction that's on the horizon. Now, is Joe Biden a great candidate? He is not. And if, if he is elected, I think it'll be a very unique circumstance where I don't know that there's a single person in the United States of America that will be voting for Joe Biden because they actually want him as president. They will be voting for Joe Biden because they really don't want the other guy as president. And that's a, you know, that speaks to the state of affairs of our democracy. And how, how are you feeling about we're a few weeks away from, from the polling day? How do yeah. you think the election will, will play out? It's interesting because during the, the midterm elections for Obama, when, when Obama was elected, there was a tremendous amount of hope was not, was, was, was real in this country that there was a, this president looked different than any other president, talked different than any other president, acted different than any other president. And then four years in, there was a horrendous disappointment and deflation about what his presidency actually meant among those who were his staunchest supporters. The exact opposite is true of Trump. He has dealt to his base the raw, red, racist meat that they crave. They are emboldened in the in their worst instincts in a way that you know their ravenous hunger for four more years. I've got a, got a pretty bad feeling about. Well, if if I mean if he wins, obviously again everything is uh, horrendous. I won't even ask you because everything is horrendous from 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 kind of uh, you know de- yes. race and preservation of democracy to yes. you know climate change uh, and so on. If Biden wins, what's the challenge? What do you think the challenge is there for, for sort of you know for progressives? Because it's not as if yeah, like I mean, the nightmare is over. Everybody yeah. chill out. No, I mean if, if Biden wins, it's straight to the barricades. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like 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 we Zach and Tim and Brad and I wrote those wrote those songs for the first record during the Bill Clinton administration. You know, you know <laughs> yeah. Biden is not some sort of, you know, pr- you know if, if only Biden were as socialist as the Republicans paint him to be. Let me assure you, he is not. Uh, so it would be it would be, you know, it would be straight to the barricades to continue fighting for that more just and more decent country and planet. Yes. <laughs> the most part of you sometimes when you when you see the Republican line on this and they go, he's about to smuggle in, you know, this kind of socialist Antifa yes. utopia. Yes. That they go for, and you just think, oh, finally. <laughs> my favorite is when they accuse like every black lives matter protest and antifa protest and whatnot like we're all being paid like like, like i'm regularly accused of like i'm being paid by some sort of some cabal liberal liberal cabal to post what i'm like i'm like i if, if so and if it's retroactive i'm gonna get my lawyers on it because i'm owed a pretty big fucking check <laughs> yeah i gotta i gotta look into the finding of all that yeah 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 where's my money Well, thank you so much for joining me, Tom Morello. My pleasure. Whatever It Takes is published by Genesis Publications on 13th of October and can be pre-ordered at tommorellobook.com. And thanks to you for listening to The Bunker Daily. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky.
The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.